Americans do not tolerate pure competitors. We've got our gun sights on the Chinese. And you understand there's a military dimension and an economic dimension to our policy. The United States is not simply containing China. We're talking about a rollback strategy. You never want to underestimate how ruthless the United States is. Despite all the liberal rhetoric that we use to cover up our ruthless behavior, we are tough customers. And the Chinese are finding that out now. That's John Mearsheimer, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features John Mearsheimer on great power politics in the 21st century. Empires rise and fall from Greek and Roman times down to the British and the French to the present-day United States. Some lasted for centuries, others mere decades. There are always new powers that want to rule the roost. Military power is closely linked to economic well-being, but once the cash register starts emptying, overall decline is not far behind. It's clear that in the 21st century, global dominance is a contest between the United States and China. Russia is dangerous but is relatively weak. Witness its ineptitude in Ukraine. The National Intelligence Council, a top-level U.S. government agency, produces reports projecting global trends. Not surprisingly, it identifies Beijing as a potential rival to Washington that, quote, will probably have the largest economy surpassing that of the United States a few years before 2030, unquote. To talk about these issues is John Mearsheimer. He's the Harrison Distinguished Service Professor in the Political Science Department at the University of Chicago. He's the author of numerous books, including Why Leaders Lie and The Great Delusion. He spoke in Budapest in November. And now, John Mearsheimer. I'd like to start out with a few preliminary remarks to give you a sense of the big picture. I think the key thing you want to remember about the world today is how we got here. Basically, when I was born and when I grew up as a young person, we lived in a bipolar world. From roughly, I'd say, 1947 to 1989, the world was bipolar. Then with the end of the Cold War in 1989, and certainly with the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991, we moved into a unipolar world. The world changed in fundamental ways as we went from bipolarity to unipolarity. Then I would argue in roughly 2017, the world went from unipolarity to multipolarity. And the world that we live in today looks a lot different than the world looked like in 2014, 2004, and 1994 because that was the unipolar moment. So what I'm saying here is that the structure or the architecture of the international system has changed in fundamental ways. Again, we've gone from bipolarity to unipolarity to multipolarity, and this has fundamental effects on international politics. In the multipolar world that we live in today, there are three great powers, the United States, China, and Russia. 
And the United States is still the most powerful state on the planet. But not too far behind the United States is China, which appears to be catching up quickly. And then a distant third is Russia. It's very important to understand that Russia is the weakest of the three great powers. From an American perspective, China is a peer competitor. Russia is not a peer competitor. It's a weak, great power. But those are the three great powers in the system. And I would argue that today, what you have in this multipolar world are two conflict dyads. One is the U.S.-China dyad. The other is the U.S.-Russia dyad. And I would contrast this with the Cold War, where you had only one dyad, which was the U.S.-Soviet dyad. And you understand that in unipolarity, because there was only one great power, there was no great power politics. You can't have great power politics when there's only one great power. Finally, I would note to you that I think the two conflict dyads that exist today are more dangerous than the conflict dyad that existed in the Cold War. I think the U.S.-China dyad and the U.S.-Russia dyad is much more dangerous, much more likely to lead to a great power war than the U.S.-Soviet dyad during the Cold War. So we're in a world today where there are two conflict dyads instead of one, and both of those conflict dyads are more dangerous than the one conflict dyad that you all know about, which is the Cold War. Now, how do I want to proceed? I want to proceed by talking about four different topics. First, I want to give you my theory of international politics. I want to tell you how I think the world works at its most basic level. That's number one. Then I want to talk about the U.S.-China competition. And I want to take my discussion of the U.S.-China competition and link it to my theory. Then I want to shift gears and I want to talk about the U.S.-Russia competition. I want to compare the U.S.-Russia competition to the U.S.-China competition and link it back to my theory. So let me start with my theory of international politics. I have a very simple theory of international politics. I start with five assumptions about the world, and then I take those five assumptions and I mix them up and I come up with a series of behaviors involving the great powers. My first assumption about the world is that states are the principal actors and there's no higher authority that sits above states. In international relations speak, we refer to this as anarchy. The world is anarchic. Anarchic does not mean murder and mayhem. Anarchic is an organizing principle. The system is anarchic. There's no higher authority. Point one. Point two is that all states have some offensive military capability. 
Now, obviously, some states have more offensive military capability than others do. The United States, for example, has much more offensive capability than Hungary. But Hungary does have some offensive military capability, as does Belgium, as does Switzerland. But then there are those countries that have a lot of offensive military capability. So the second assumption has to do with capabilities. The third assumption has to do with intentions. When I was an Air Force officer, I was in technical intelligence. And when we looked at the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War, we always want to know what are Soviet intentions and what do their capabilities look like? So the second assumption deals with capabilities. That's the offensive capabilities argument. The third assumption deals with intentions. And the intentions argument goes like this. No state can ever be certain. You just can't know for sure what the intentions of other states are. Now, why is this a case? If you think about capabilities, offensive capabilities, you can see them and you can measure them. During the Cold War, we could count how many armored division equivalents the Warsaw Pact had. We could count how many SS-18 missiles the Soviet Union had. We could count how many submarines they had because they were material things that you could see. Intentions are remarkably difficult to figure out because they're in people's heads and you can't see into people's heads. So we could never figure out exactly what Soviet intentions were, whether Stalin was running Soviet policy, Khrushchev was running policy, or Brezhnev. It's just very hard to get inside those leaders' heads and figure out what their intentions were. Now, if you think that's not true, and intentions are reasonably easy to figure out, not impossible, but reasonably easy, my counter-argument to that is you cannot know future intentions. None of you know who will be running Russia in 20 years. None of you know who will be running Germany or the United States in 20 years. So you can't know Russia's, America's, or Germany's intentions. So one of the fundamental assumptions underpinning my theory is uncertainty about intentions. This is not to say you can be certain that another state will have bad intentions. You just can't be certain that it won't have bad intentions. So I've told you so far that there are three assumptions. One is states are the key actors. The system is anarchic. There's no higher authority that sits above states, one. Two, all states have some offensive military capability. And three, you just can't be certain about the intentions of other states. Now, I have two other assumptions that I'm going to throw out. The fourth assumption is that the principal goal of states is survival. And the reason is simple. If you don't survive, you can't pursue any of your other goals. So survival has to be the number one goal for every state in the system. And then the fifth assumption is that states are rational actors. They're basically strategic calculators. 
They're good at coming up with strategies for maximizing their prospects of survival. So the fourth assumption is survival, and the fifth assumption is states are rational actors. So those are five assumptions. I think they're all reasonable assumptions. You take them, you put them in the blender, you hit the on switch, you mix them up, and you get a very, very competitive and dangerous world. Now, why is that the case? First, states fear each other. Why do they fear each other? They fear each other because there may be a powerful state that has malign intentions. If you're France after World War I, and you know you're living next door to Germany, and you can't know what Germany's intentions are going to be 10, 15, 20 years in the future, and you know that the Germans have a huge amount of latent capability, you're going to fear them. And the French did fear them. So you fear them for that reason. The second reason that states fear each other is if you get into trouble, you're in an anarchic system, which means there's no higher authority that you can call. So fear is a constant among great powers in the international system. The second form of behavior you get is self-help. As my mother used to say when I was a little boy, God helps those who help themselves. That's the way international politics works. You do not depend on anybody else. This is not to say you can't form alliances, but it is to say it's a self-help world. States fear each other. They understand that they have to take care of themselves. The third form of behavior is that you figure out very quickly that the best way to survive in the international system is to be the most powerful state in the system. It's to maximize your relative power. In a world, an anarchic world, where you cannot know the intentions of other states, and other states may be really powerful, the best way to survive is to be the most powerful state in the system. I often say to American audiences, how many of you go to bed at night worrying about Canada or Mexico or Guatemala attacking the United States. It's unthinkable. Why? Because we're Godzilla. Nobody's going to attack Godzilla. In an anarchic system where you cannot know the intentions of other states, you want to be Godzilla. Now let me just unpack this a bit more because it's relevant for what I'm going to talk about with regard to China and Russia. When I talk about maximizing power, the ideal situation is to be a regional hegemon, to dominate your region of the world, number one. Number two, to make sure that no other state dominates its region of the world. So just take the United States. The United States, when it got started in 1783, was comprised of 13 colonies strung out along the Atlantic seaboard. What we did was we marched across the continent and we carved out this huge and powerful state. And then with the Monroe Doctrine, we pushed the European great powers out of the Western Hemisphere and we told them, you are not welcome back here. This is our hemisphere and you stay out. 
we went to great lengths to create regional hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. At the same time, we do not tolerate peer competitors. We played a key role in putting Imperial Germany, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union all on the scrap heap of history. And you can see the United States putting its crosshairs on China today. The United States does not tolerate peer competitors. We do not want any other country on the planet to ever imitate us. According to our playbook, there's only one country that's allowed to be a regional hegemon, and that's the United States of America. This is completely consistent with the theory that I laid out to you. I gave you the logic that underpins it. Now, I just want to say a word or two more. I've emphasized the importance of gaining power, becoming a regional hegemon, maximizing your power. It's also very important to understand that states that are facing a great power that's getting more and more powerful go to great lengths to balance against that state. So states in the international system, here we're talking mainly about great powers, balance against rising states. They try to check states that are encroaching on them. That's the balancing behavior that comes out of my story. But again, the ideal situation is to be a regional hegemon. Now, that's my theory. Let's talk about the US-China competition. What's going on here is very simple. As a result of America's policy of engagement with China, which started in the early 1990s, we have foolishly helped turn China into an economically powerful country. China has grown very wealthy. It has a huge population. Population and wealth are the two foundations of military power. Because China has so many people and it's now so wealthy, it's not just a peer competitor of the United States, it's also a potential regional hegemon. And you know what the Chinese are doing? The Chinese are interested in becoming a regional hegemon. They want to dominate Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. And I want to be very clear here. I do not blame the Chinese one second. If I was in Beijing and I was running Chinese foreign policy, my aim would be to make sure that China is by far the most powerful country in Asia, and I would go to great lengths to push the Americans out beyond the first island chain and then beyond the second island chain. I'd have my own Chinese Monroe Doctrine, and I'd want to make sure the Americans are across the Pacific Ocean, just like we want to make sure from an American point of view the Chinese are across the Pacific Ocean. The Chinese understand full well what happens when you're weak in the international system. They call it the century of national humiliation. It lasted from the late 1840s to the late 1940s. China was very weak during that 100-year period. And you know what happened to them when they were very weak? The other great powers in the system, including the United States of America, preyed upon them.
They were victimized at every turn. The Chinese understand full well, if you want to survive in the international system, you want to be really powerful. Indeed, you want to imitate the United States. You want to dominate Asia the way the Americans dominate the Western Hemisphere. This is what my theory tells you. It's what the Americans did, and it's what the Chinese are doing. If the Chinese want to get Taiwan back, they want to control the South China Sea, they want to control the East China Sea, there's one simple way to do it. Get the Americans out of East Asia and make sure they are the most powerful state in the system. So that's what they're doing. What about the Americans? The Americans do not tolerate peer competitors. We're not going to let China dominate Asia. Unless China just grows so powerful, there's nothing we can do to stop it from dominating Asia. We've got our gun sights on the Chinese. You fully understand that, right? And you understand there's a military dimension and an economic dimension to our policy. We're putting together a balancing coalition in East Asia, mainly based around military forces to contain China. We're talking about how to defend Taiwan militarily. That's the military part of the balancing coalition. But you also want to understand there's an economic dimension to our strategy. We're actually trying to roll back Chinese economic growth. We want to strangle Chinese economic growth because we understand full well that military power is largely a function of economic power. So the United States is not simply containing China. We're talking about a rollback strategy. You never want to underestimate how ruthless the United States is. Despite all the liberal rhetoric that we use to cover up our ruthless behavior, we are tough customers. And the Chinese are finding that out now. In the early 1990s, when I told the Chinese, if you continue to grow economically, there's going to be a fierce security competition, and you're going to be shocked at how ruthless the United States is. They simply didn't believe me, because the United States was treating them very well at the time. I said, what you don't understand is that the structure is going to change. And when the structure changes, when we go from unipolarity to multipolarity, and you're a peer competitor, we're going to think about you very differently than we think about you now. And that's exactly what's happening. So you see what's happened here is you have this intense security competition between the United States, which doesn't tolerate peer competitors on one hand, and China on the other hand, which is interested in becoming a regional hegemon, a peer of the United States, a full peer. Why is it so dangerous? Taiwan is the key here. Taiwan is a very dangerous situation. The United States feels that it has to defend Taiwan for security reasons. So you see the United States moving closer and closer to Taiwan. It's very important to understand that Taiwan is sacred territory for China. The Chinese are deeply committed to making sure that Taiwan does not remain independent over the long term and that it's incorporated back into the mainland. And we're basically saying, we meaning the Americans are basically saying, that's not happening. And we're tightening our relationship with Taiwan, which means de facto independence for the foreseeable future. And this, not surprisingly, enrages the Chinese. So this is a very dangerous conflict dyad. Now, we go to the third part of my talk and focus on US-Russian relations, which revolve these days mainly around the Ukraine war. 
Now, the conventional wisdom in the West is certainly true in the United States, certainly true in places like Poland, the Baltic states, and most of Western Europe. The conventional wisdom is that the Russians are bent on establishing hegemony in Europe. The argument is that the Russians, especially Vladimir Putin, are an imperial power. And that Vladimir Putin wants to either recreate the Soviet Union or he wants to create a greater Russia. And then once that's done, he's going to push forward to create an empire in Eastern Europe. And the argument, as you know, is that he is determined, number one, to conquer Ukraine, number two, occupy Ukraine, and number three, make it part of a greater Russia. And then when he's done with Ukraine, he'll march on toward other states like Poland, the Baltic states, Romania, maybe Hungary, who knows? He's an imperialist. He's bent on regional hegemony in effect, right? This is the argument. If you believe this story, it looks a lot like the China story, right? China, as I told you, there's no question that what China is trying to do is establish regional hegemony. The question is, do you think that's what the Russians are doing? I do not think that is true. I think it is dead wrong. First of all, it's very clear to me that there is no evidence, none, that Putin has ever said that he thought it would be a good idea to conquer Ukraine and make it part of Russia. There's no evidence that he ever said he thought it was feasible to do that. And there's no evidence that he ever said that that's what he plans to do. And I've given this talk many times. Uh, I've corresponded with all sorts of people. I've had research assistants look into this. Nobody can show me where he said any one of those three things. Furthermore, Russia does not have the capability to conquer Ukraine, much less conquer other countries. And oh, by the way, there's no evidence he ever talked about conquering any other country. That's not surprising. If he didn't talk about conquering and integrating Ukraine into a greater Russia. He surely wasn't going to talk about doing that with the Baltic states or Poland. He never talked about that. There's no evidence of that. But again, he doesn't have the capability. You all have noticed that the Russians can barely defeat the Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine. How are these Russian forces going to conquer all of Ukraine? Have you ever looked at the number of troops that the Russians sent into Ukraine on February 24th? At the most, 190,000, at the most. You know, when the Germans went into Poland, September 1st, 1939, the Germans went in with 1.5 million troops. And by the way, in the middle of September, the Soviets came in the back door. The Germans, as a result of the von Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, understood full well that they wouldn't be conquering Poland alone. They'd be doing it with the Red Army. And Poland was not a formidable military 
state at the time. They still went in with 1.5 million troops. Putin went in with 190,000 troops at the most, and he didn't really have any reserves that could have been brought in afterwards. You're not going to conquer Ukraine with a force that size. Ukraine is a huge piece of territory. He wasn't interested in conquering Ukraine and incorporating it into Russia. What was he doing? It's quite clear what he was doing. He was defending Russia against the West's efforts to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border. We had a policy in the West, driven mainly by the United States, that had three prongs to it. One was NATO expansion. The goal was to bring Ukraine into NATO. The second prong was to bring Ukraine into the European Union. And the third prong was to foster an orange revolution in Ukraine and make it a pro-Western liberal democracy. These are the three prongs of the strategy. And the overall goal was, again, to create a Ukraine that was a Western bulwark on Russia's border. Now, NATO expansion was really the key. That's what really spooked the Russians. Of the three elements of the strategy, it was NATO expansion. It was in April of 2008 uh, at the Bucharest NATO summit where NATO announced when the summit ended that Georgia and Ukraine would become part of NATO. Putin, who was actually at the summit, he was on friendly terms with the West at that point in time, went ballistic. The Russians made it unequivocally clear that Ukraine in NATO was categorically unacceptable. William Burns, who's now the head of the CIA, was then, 2008, the US ambassador in Moscow. He wrote a memorandum to Condoleezza Rice, who was then Secretary of State, warning against NATO expansion into Ukraine. He said that Ukraine in NATO is the brightest of red lines for all members of the Russian foreign policy establishment. He said, I've talked to all the knuckle-draggers in the recesses of the Kremlin, and I have talked to Putin's most ardent liberal opponents, and all of them agree. Ukraine in NATO is unacceptable. Angela Merkel, who much to her credit, opposed making any kind of offer to Ukraine in the April 2008 summit, said recently that the reason she opposed that idea was she understood it was the equivalent of a, these are her words, declaration of war against Russia. This is what Angela Merkel said. Nevertheless, the United States continued to push forward. We had gotten NATO expansion through for the first time in 1999. 
you all know, this is when Hungary became a member of NATO, 1999. Then in 2004, we had the second expansion of NATO. Countries like Romania, the Baltic states, Slovenia came in to the alliance. And here we are, 2008. This is going to be, this is going to be this, the third big tranche. We're going to bring in Georgia, and we're going to bring in Ukraine. You remember what happened with Georgia. Four months later, in August 2008, you had a war over Georgia. Surprise of surprises. The Russians were putting their foot down. Nevertheless, why did we continue to push? The answer is Russia was weak. Think of the century of national humiliation for the Chinese. The Americans thought they could shove another tranche of expansion to include Ukraine down Russia's throat. We thought the Russians were weak. And you know, when you're weak and the Americans got their gun sights on you, they're not good, right? So we continued to push, even after things blew up in Georgia in August 2008. And what was the end result? The end result is that in February, February 22nd, 2014, to be exact, the crisis in Ukraine broke out. And this is when the Russians took the Crimea and trouble started in the Donbass and you effectively got a civil war in the Donbass that the Russians were involved in. Now the question you want to ask yourself is what did the Americans do in response? You might have thought that the Americans would have backed off seeing the trouble that they had stirred up. But the Americans did not back off. NATO did not back off. In fact, we doubled down. We then started training large numbers of Ukrainian forces. We then started arming large numbers of Ukrainian forces. We were giving them intelligence and we were helping them plan their military operations in the Donbass, in the civil war that was taking place. In effect, what was happening is that Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO. This is why in December 2021, Putin and Lavrov made it very clear. They wrote a letter to the head of NATO and they wrote a letter to President Biden saying, we want a written statement that says Ukraine will never become part of NATO. They had a number of other demands as well. The reason that happened was Ukraine was becoming a de facto member of NATO. And the American response was, we're not changing anything. Nothing is going to change. And the end result is on February 24th, Putin launched what was effectively a preventive war. You're listening to John Mearsheimer on Great Power Politics in the 21st Century. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Putin has decided that there are two possible outcomes here. One is a neutral Ukraine, which is what they preferred all along, or a Ukraine that is wrecked and is a rump state. And as you all know, what the Russians are now doing is they're wrecking Ukraine. 
This is a total disaster. It's absolutely horrible. I do not want to make light of it for one second. The point is, this is the end result of our efforts, the West's efforts. And when I say the West, I'm talking mainly about the United States. The West's efforts to make Ukraine a Western bulwark. Russians found this intolerable. And by the way, I talked about the Monroe Doctrine. That's when we pushed all the European great powers out and we said, you are not welcome in the Western Hemisphere. The Cuban Missile Crisis was all about the Monroe Doctrine. We did not, for one second, like the idea of the Soviet Union putting missiles in the Western Hemisphere, in Cuba, right near the United States. I want to ask you something. If China decided to form a military alliance with Canada or Mexico, and they put Chinese troops in Toronto or Montreal or in Mexico City, what do you think the United States would do? You think the United States would say, oh, that's not a big deal. We really don't care. I can guarantee you that would not be our response. We told Khrushchev in 1962, those missiles are going to go one way or another. We are not going to tolerate those missiles in the Western Hemisphere. Well, as my mother took me when I was a little boy, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You're surprised that the Russians don't want a military alliance that was a mortal foe of the Soviet Union during the Cold War sitting on their doorstep? I don't understand why so many people in the West, especially in the United States and Western Europe, can't understand that this is one of the most provocative moves the United States could have ever pushed NATO to pursue. It's just hard to understand. We should understand it from our own historical experience. And again, Bill Burns said, and he was not the only one, you heard what Angela Merkel said. I could go back into the 1990s, tell you what George Kennan said, Bill Perry, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time when NATO expansion first got started. All sorts of people said, this is going to lead to no end of trouble. And you know what George Kennan said? Not only is it going to lead to no end of trouble, when the trouble comes, we're going to blame the Russians. And of course, that's exactly what happens, because we in the United States are never responsible for any of the world's problems. It's always somebody else. You know how that works. So to basically sum up here, I laid out my theory. I explained what's going on with China and the United States. And that one looks a lot like the Cold War. And then I talked about what happened just now with regard to Russia and the United States. And my point there is that's not like the Cold War. Russia is not the Soviet Union. And uh, Russia was not trying to establish hegemony. This is balancing behavior on the Russians' part. They're balancing against NATO expansion and the more general policy of making Ukraine a Western ally uh, on their border. And again, these are two very dangerous situations. I've talked about the Chinese situation and Taiwan. The potential for escalation here is significant. It is not non-trivial. <laughs> the potential for nuclear escalation is not non-trivial. Now, the real problem is the dangers moving forward. I think the situation is going to get much worse. First of all, there's the danger of escalation here. If the West is successful 
and we push the Russians back in Ukraine. The Ukrainians who were arming, training, and helping on the battlefield, if the Ukrainians succeed in pushing the Russians out of Ukraine and the sanctions begin to bite, I think the Russians will escalate. And I think there's a good chance that they would use nuclear weapons. Furthermore, I think there's a reasonable chance that NATO will get involved in a war in Ukraine. The Americans have said that they have no intention of fighting in Ukraine, but we are doing everything but pulling the trigger and pushing the button to launch the bombs in Ukraine. It's amazing how deeply involved we are. We are deeply committed, I'm talking more about the Americans than the Europeans, but even NATO, to the point where if the Russians succeed, then the temptation for us, the West, especially the United States, to enter the war will be very great. Biden will be under tremendous pressure to go in and help rescue the Ukrainians. So you can see the potential for escalation. And you know, all know that Avril Haines, the woman who is the director of national intelligence in the United States, she says that the most likely scenario for the Russians to use nuclear weapons would be if the Americans or NATO comes into the fight because the Russians are not going to be able to stand up to us. Right. You all know, as I said before, the Russians can barely handle the Ukrainians in the Donbass. The Russian military is no match for the United States, no match for NATO. And what Avril Haines was saying is that's the circumstance under which the Russians will be desperate. And you all understand the Russians believe they're facing an existential threat. It's very important that you understand this. They believe that they're facing an existential threat. They thought Ukraine and NATO was an existential threat. Well, now we're talking about a situation where you're not only being threatened by Ukraine becoming part of NATO, becoming a member of NATO, you're also threatened by the fact that the United States is talking about defeating you on your doorstep. And if the American military is to come into the fight and the American military is fighting on Ukrainian territory right next door to Russia, this is an existential threat. This is where states use nuclear weapons. And, and we're not that far away from that point. So the threat of escalation is very great. Let's assume that doesn't happen. Let's hope that doesn't happen, right? That the United States does not get involved, NATO does not get involved, and let's hope nuclear weapons are not used. But what's the alternative then? It's a stalemate. That's the alternative, a stalemate that goes on and on and on. This is going to have significant negative consequences for Europe. The economic costs of this war to individual countries in Europe are already profound. And it's almost impossible to find anybody who says the situation's going to improve markedly next year or the year after. We're staring many years of bad economic news in the face because of what's happening here. 
those economic consequences are going to have political consequences. You can already see that happening. Right? So there's going to be economic turmoil and political turmoil if you have a stalemate, if the present situation continues on and on and you don't have escalation. And the problem here is not only the effect on individual countries like Hungary, there's also the effect on the institutions like NATO and the EU. I think you can already see cracks, you can already see fissures in these alliances. Just think about the Poles on one hand and the Hungarians on the other. Think about the Poles and the Germans. Think about the Germans and the French. People think about what's happening in Ukraine. Countries think about what's happening in Ukraine in different ways. And as the economic and political costs continue to ratchet up, I think you're going to see fissures in those institutions. And this is going to have very negative consequences for Europe as a whole and for Hungary in particular. So the point I'm making to you is that I think things have worked out quite well up to now, given the circumstances. Uh, I'm not very sanguine about the future, uh, just because I think this is such a volatile situation. So what's my bottom line here? My bottom line is the unipolar moment, which is a time that most of you grew up in, was really a wonderful time, but it's gone away. And we actually live in very dangerous times. Right? As I said to you before, we now live in a world where there are two major conflict dyads. There was only one in the Cold War. We're very close to where the United States and Russia could end up shooting at each other. We were never this close in the Cold War. Maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I mean, we were in a very dangerous situation in Ukraine. And, and I, I know a lot of people who would agree to that and say the situation's even more dangerous in East Asia, especially because of Taiwan. This is a very dangerous world. I think moving forward, it's going to be a very difficult task to avoid serious trouble for Hungary and for all the other countries in Europe and for the United States as well. Thank you. Thank you very much for your presentation. If the US considers China as a peer competitor, uh, wouldn't it make sense for the US to have a strong ally in form of Europe yeah. and not uh, like weaken them against the Russia conflict when China is the real peer competitor? Let me start by saying that if you're the United States of America and you're in a multipolar world and China is a peer competitor and a potential regional hegemon, and Russia is a weak great power. It's in your interest to have Russia as an ally. What the United States should be doing is it should be minimizing the forces that it has in Europe and forming an alliance with Russia so that Russia is part of the balancing coalition against China. That's what we should have done. But instead, what has happened is we have picked a fight with the Russians. The Russians are now a mortal enemy. And we have pushed the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. 
And we have gotten more deeply involved militarily in Europe than was the case during the unipolar moment. This is at a time when we should be pivoting to Asia. You know all the emphasis the Americans put on pivoting to Asia? It's very hard to pivot to Asia when you're increasing your commitment in Europe. So we're increasing our commitment in Europe, and we've driven the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. This gets to your question. I think that what's happening here is we are, for the foreseeable future, moving to a world where you have the Russians and the Chinese on one side, the Iranians and the North Koreans as others, and others as well. And then on the other side, you have the Americans, the West Europeans, the Japanese, the South Koreans, and the Australians, the so-called West. So I think you are getting something of an East-West divide here. And remember what we were talking about with regarding to economic intercourse in Europe. It looks like Russian-European economic intercourse is going to dry up in large part in the years ahead. It's already happening, which would just reinforce the point that I'm making. So I think, yeah, this is what's happening. And I think from an American point of view, it's not in our interest because, again, it would be in our interest to have an alliance with the Russians. By the way, just look at the Iranians. The Americans have this thing about Iran where we constantly talk about how evil the Iranians are, we're willing, unwilling to you know, reach any form of meaningful agreement with them and so forth and so on. And what we've in effect done with the Iranians is driven them into the arms of the Russians. The Russians are getting all sorts of drones and ballistic missiles from the Iranians that are invaluable in their war in Ukraine. And that's because the Iranians have a vested interest in working with the Russians because the Americans have their gun sights on Iran. I don't think that's smart either. Hello, uh, I wanted to ask you about the option of nuclear escalation again in terms of the scenario where we presume that uh, American boots are on Ukrainian soil. So you argued that as that option would be seen by Russia as an existential threat. They, it's, it's a potential for the usage of nuclear weapons, but I would presume that in a Russian nuclear strike in which there are American casualties, that scenario would warrant a similar response. So is it wrong to presume that maybe mutually assured destruction is a strong enough force to prevent the usage of nuclear weapons even in such a radical situation, like say if as long as Russia's territorial integrity is not directly threatened. Let me just say a few words about nuclear use, the, the different scenarios. The most likely scenario at this point in time where Russia uses nuclear weapons would be in Ukraine. If Russia is losing the war in Ukraine, it would be tempted at least to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine against Ukrainian forces and Ukrainian targets. So in that case, the United States would not be involved, NATO would not be involved, and we would therefore not have to retaliate. This is one of the reasons that 
I'm very nervous that the Russians may use nuclear weapons if they're losing in Ukraine. Because if they're losing in Ukraine, they can use nuclear weapons inside Ukraine with a low risk that the Americans will hit them with nuclear weapons. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that if the Americans get involved in the war, that NATO gets involved in the war, the Russians are likely to use nuclear weapons. This is what Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence said, and I think she's correct. So the Americans get involved. The Americans come in, it's a conventional war against the Russians, it's a conventional war. And my argument was the Russians would use nuclear weapons. I'm following in the footsteps of Avril Haines, likely to use nuclear weapons, that's the scenario. Your question is, is the threat of mutual assured destruction, which is certainly there, you're absolutely right, it's sitting in the background. Both sides, apropos this gentleman's question, both sides have the ability to turn the other side into a smoking, radiating ruin. Okay, that's mad, mutual assured destruction. Does that mean the Russians won't use nukes because they don't want to get incinerated? Of course, they don't want to get incinerated, but the way around that, and this, is, this was NATO policy during the Cold War, is you launch a small number of nuclear weapons against the other side and you make it clear you're now out on the slippery slope to oblivion. This is what Thomas Schelling called the manipulation of risk. You all understand, just to go back to the Cold War, I'm NATO. The Warsaw Pact is coming into West Germany. NATO's forces collapse. NATO has said, this is Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, that we will then countenance using nuclear weapons, and we had thousands of nuclear weapons in Europe, in Germany, to, we would use those nuclear weapons against the Warsaw Pact. How did we think about using them? We thought about a limited use of nuclear weapons because we wanted to avoid mutual assured destruction. And what we do is we launch a handful of nuclear weapons reminding the Russians, excuse me, the Soviets during the Cold War, that in the background is that mad capability. And if this one spins out of control, we're all gonna get incinerated. So our belief was a handful of nuclear weapons, you know, manipulating risk, would convince the Soviets to pull back. Whoa, the Americans are deadly serious here. But again, the two points I'm making to you is you want to remember the first scenario is that the Russians use nuclear weapons inside Ukraine. And there, the threat of MAD is tiny. The second scenario is the Americans get involved. The Russians use nukes against the Americans, but they do it in a very limited fashion, thinking they can avoid MAD, but use MAD to convince the Americans and NATO to back off. That's how I think about nukes. And we're in a very dangerous situation. So thank you for <laughs> answering the question. You were just listening to John Mearsheimer on great power politics in the 21st century. He spoke in Budapest. John Mearsheimer is Harrison Distinguished Service Professor in the Political Science Department 
at the University of Chicago. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Rami Khoury, Sarah Lee Whitson, Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, and Arundhati Roy. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, John Mearsheimer on Great Power Politics in the 21st Century, and for Noam Chomsky's book, Notes on Resistance, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. <laughs>